Welcome to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm Keely Heron. I'm Pat Wright. And on today's episode, Pat, what are we listening to? We are listening to a great Giacomo Puccini opera, the very last one he wrote, or almost wrote, Turandot. Or Turandot. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> you say potato. <laughs> I say potato. The, so this is when I said almost wrote. He died before he was able to fully complete this opera. Oh, is that right? I didn't know that. Yep, this was his last one, and it had to be completed by another Italian composer. The premiere year for this final opera of Puccini's was 1926. He died in 1924. Wow, so it's fairly contemporary. I guess, I, you know, I'm always surprised by that when they're newer. Well, a benchmark for me is always that 1900 was when Tosca came out. And Puccini did, I guess his first big hit was Manon Lescaut, and that was 1893. And Butterfly was 1904, Girl of the Golden West, 1910. And the one which preceded this, or should I say the three which preceded this, was Tritico. And that was in 1918. All oh, right. And Tritico, we did... We did Il Tritico, didn't we? We certainly did. Gianni Schicchi. But that is one of the three, Sir Angelica and Il Tabaro. Those are the other two. Yeah. It's a funny little trio of operas, but I really enjoyed those. They were funny. Uh, well, Sor Angelica was not <laughs> I was going to say, no one has ever called Sor Angelica funny, I don't think. <laughs> no, but Gianni Schicchi was hilarious. And meant to be. Okay, well, but okay, I digress. So, yes, Turandot has its comic moments, but not a comedy. No. Definitely a spectacle, though. And it does have one of my favorite arias of all time. Let me guess, is it sung by the tenor? Yes. <laughs> Tell us, what is it? Nessun dorma, nessun dorma. <laughs> okay, well, we'll look forward to that. That's in the, <laughs> that's in the last act, so you're going to have to hang in there to hear that I, by I a professional. <laughs> I don't think Jose Carreras has anything to worry about. Yeah, I think you're... From me, at least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So this is set in a mythical ancient China. And let me just say to start out, this is a fairy tale. This is not real. This is not Verismo. Mm. Because we are following the period where Verismo was the, the style of opera, this true-to-life, gritty reality. And you could argue that some of Puccini's operas bought into that Verismo sensibility. Tosca, for example, bits of La Boheme. Right. I mean, I would even argue these are not real people. And the more I spend time with Turandot, the more I just have to appreciate the fact that it upsets me when I try to think of these people as real people and the way they behave. But if I stop and say these are fairy tale characters, right. it's a little easier to handle. Yeah, yeah, because it is fantastical. It is fantastical. So it's it's ancient China, but honestly, Puccini decided to do this story because he had seen a play which had been written in 1761, so quite a bit before this time, which was also based on a 12th century Persian fairy tale. So oh, it's an right? old, old story, and huh. a, a lot of dramatists had taken this material, this story. So we're going to try to find what is so interesting to authors and playwrights and composers about this story. Friedrich Schiller, for example, did a take on this story. Who is Friedrich Schiller? Oh, he's the great German philosopher and writer. 
So ah. it's, it is embraced by many, many different Europeans. In fact, there was an opera also written about it not that much, decade or two, I think, before Puccini. So, Okay, so great source material. Fantastic. It's, it's great Set source in- material, it, although if you try to think of them as people, it makes you crazy, or at least it makes me crazy, because these are not nice people. No. Well, there's an element of, like, Rumpelstiltskin to it. Well, yeah, literally, um, yeah. as we go on with the story, where that finding his name is, is key to the story. But let's set the scene. And one yes. of the things that's super fun about this opera is it's not the long, slow buildup. You know, a lot of operas, you know, there's a nice overture, a little symphonia, the people kind of mill around, and then we ease our way into the story. Not Turandot. Turandot Just- hits you, slam, Right Bang. in the beginning. It's crazy. Bam, pow, in the kisser. Yeah, the very first. <laughs> <laughs> I'll leave that one be. In the very first bit that's, that's sung, it's one of the palace officials saying, people of Peking, listen up. We're going to say Peking here because that's what they called Beijing in this time period when Puccini was writing. So people of Peking, this is the law. Turando the pure will be the bride of the man of royal blood who solves three enigmas. But if he fails, he will be killed. So right there, boom, there's the story. And then next, and the crowd gasps. And by the way, the the chorus is on stage for the better part of this opera. And is it a large chorus? Depending on the opera company. <laughs> Depending on the production. I see. Okay. Yeah. So so in a big house and a and an opera company that can, can pull it off. Yeah, it is a large chorus because it's meant to be the populace of Peking. Right. Okay. That they're speaking to. And then the very next thing this official will say is the Prince of Persia. He has failed. He tried. He couldn't answer the questions. And so he must die. And instantly the crowd cheers, essentially cheers for the executioner to come out and they want this man's blood this is what they expect it's it's a real mob mentality that you see going on throughout the opera mm-hmm. but they enhance very much enhance what's going on and it's part of this entire feeling that you get from the opera that everything is big and grand and masses of people and mm. it also makes our main characters a little more distant because uh-huh. because they are more distant. Right, yeah. I remember in the staging that I saw, which I believe was at the Met, and of course the Met is a massive stage. And you probably saw the Zeffirelli production because they've done that since 1987. Yeah. That's um, been the turn dot, yes. And it is, it does have that scale of China. It's very evocative of like, it's vi- it's a huge and you can't, see the characters it feels like it's set way back on the stage and they're not accessible right because it's not an intimate opera Mm -mm. yeah it's not about intimacy it's about these these huge forces yeah so let's listen to a little bit of that scene with the official and the crowd shouting for blood all right so if you're just tuning in you're listening to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL, and on today's show, we are listening to Giacomo Puccini's Torandot.
So we've just heard two of the opening songs from Giacomo Puccini's Torondot. And uh, in the first one, it was People of Peking, Listen Up. And then the second one was Father, My Father. As I said before, so much happens very quickly in the beginning of this opera. We've learned the rules of the game, Mm -hmm. that 
She needs to get married, but she will only marry a man of royal blood who can answer her three enigmas. Mm-hmm. We know that one prince is... Is already dead. Well, he's on his way to the executioner. He hasn't died yet. And the crowd is calling Wild. for his blood. Like, like crowds can get excited about an execution. But also, as they are in their frenzy, this, this chorus, this crowd, the people of Peking, they're kind of pushing forward. And the guards are yelling at them, stand back, you dogs. And the crowd is, is afraid of the palace guards. Oh, my babies, my mothers, stop, cruel ones. Be human, don't hurt us. So hmm. there's quite a sense of, of imperial power being portrayed here. And in and amongst all of this chaos... We see an old man with a young woman, and the young woman screams, Oh, help him! He's fallen! Please help this old man! And then our lead male, our tenor, who at this point is simply known as the Unknown Prince, rushes in and says, My father! This is my father! And it unfolds that this father and this son have been separated for a long time, and the father thought the son was dead. Wow. And so in this scene of the crowd looking forward to an execution, you have the father saying, you're alive, you're alive. And that's juxtaposed with the crowd crying, we want death, we want death. Which huh. is, it's, it's a very jarring feeling. And you're thinking, wow, there's, I got to really pay attention to this opera because there's yeah. a lot going on in the beginning again. Well, yeah. I mean, and like you said, it's, I mean, there were like, three minutes into the opera and that's a lot of plot that's right so this unknown prince explains that they have to be very careful and he's kind of under wraps because the person who took the crown away from his father the usurper is still after both of them and they're they're not safe and so they've got to continue hiding which is he's a deposed king the father is a deposed king and his heir the prince are of royal blood, they are dressed like commoners. They are Mm -hmm. dressed not in regal clothing. But the father can't believe himself. Oh, by the way, the the father is completely blind. Uh And so finally, the prince turns to the young woman and says, well, who are you? Do do I know you? (laughs) And she says, oh, I'm nobody. I'm just a slave, but I'm, I'm helping your father. Well, why in the world were you helping my father? I mean, thank you. Thank you very much. You're a nice, nice person. Thanks. But why are you helping him? And at this point, you just know things are going to be rough. And she says, oh, one day back in the palace, when we all lived there, you smiled at me. And so she explains that's why she's helping the father. Because Ah, she loves... she's in love with the unknown prince. And he doesn't even really see her as a person yeah right okay so so we've met these people in their through their voices and do you want to talk at all about who they who they are beyond just that it's an unknown prince and his father I mean do we need to know their names or the young woman is Leah the father is Timur which Mm -hmm. I think that's we probably won't use his name that much. We may just call him the father. And the unknown prince, don't ask me his name because right. that's we part of the story. <laughs> so this has all been revealed. And then we're back to the crowd crying for blood. Grind the whetstone, grind the whetstone. And let's get a little more sense of that crowd. <laughs> Hey, 
while, so that is quite an angry crowd. Well, they're all whipped up. They're ready for this this execution, but they're also, in their excitement, the Royal Guard and the executioner's men continue to push back against them. They even say, with our hooks and our knives, we are ready to embroider your skins. Wow. It's pretty graphic, violent language. But the crowd also says, oh, Turandot, she may be bloodthirsty, she may cause all these problems, but she's white as jade, cold as that sword. She's the beautiful Turandot. So we've got this strange sense of things going on, and the crowd says love is in vain if luck isn't there. And I feel like that's Mm. an easy line to miss, but also one that pans out during the story. Yeah. Luck is necessary. So the crowd continues to wait, continues to wait. They refer to Turandot as the mean one, bloodless, taciturn, pale lover of the dead. You fill up the graveyards, etc., etc. And then, after all the intensity of the things that we've heard, mm-hmm. we hear something beautiful and sweet. And dare I say, it sounds to our ears, to our Western ears at least, more Chinese than mm-hmm. what we've heard so far. And it's this little tune with the name of Jasmine Flower, but it's a small group of a boy's choir that sings this little ditty. And it's a tune, a little melody, which will appear repeatedly through this opera. Let's listen to that. You're listening to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL, and on today's show, we're listening to Turandot by Giacomo Puccini. And we've just heard a selection of this more Eastern or Chinese-sounding And the sweet voices of those young boys. And the, and the little boys' chorus. Yeah, and this serves as a transition to the mood on stage, because at this point, we see this regal and doomed prince of Persia appear. This young man who is going to be sentenced to death, the one whose blood they've been crying for. But when they see him and his regal bearing, the crowd, dare I say, changes its tune. Is that right? (laughs) They get a conscience. They feel bad. Yes, they, they, they say mercy, mercy for the youth. Oh, look how sweet his face is, his eyes. How steady is his step? Have pity on him. Have pity. And as this entire crowd has changed its tune, this unknown prince turns his attention to what's going on. And he is horrified, disgusted, and he's angry. And he says, let me see you, Turandot. Let me see you so that I may curse you, cruel one. So he's just ready to 
give her what for. Mm-hmm. And the crowd continues to sing, have pity on him, have pity on him. And she, we haven't even seen her yet, but we know her this appearance. This ice queen. Yeah, and in fact, in the production, the Zeffirelli production, which has been around for a while, mm-hmm. she wears an icy blue yeah. costume where yes. everyone else is in warm colors. She's in this icy blue color. Mm-hmm. So her appearance is imminent and she finally does appear and all of her subjects prostrate themselves. The executioner remains standing and the unknown prince who's furious at her and doesn't respect her and how can she be so cruel, he remains standing, but something happens to him. He is struck. Yeah, love at first sight. And the next thing we hear from him is, oh divine beauty, oh marvel. Oh, dream. And he's he's a goner. He's lost it. Yeah. Yeah, he's, he's fallen for her. And in the midst of all this, his father cries out, My son! My... You know, cause his father may be blind, but he knows what's going on. You are lost. Huh. And the father asks Leo, the young woman who's helping him, Speak to him. Make him see reason. Make him see sense. Which she would love to do. She'd love to have all three of them. Because she's in love with them. Absolutely. And she tries. But never forget, this is a society where if you're a slave, no matter how awful the situation, you don't stand a chance with a prince. Right. The prince honestly doesn't recognize her as a person. Right. I believe. And she tries is completely unsuccessful. He doesn't really even deal with her. But he says to his father, Father, after his father says, you're lost, you're going to die, he says, no, this is life, as he's looking at the intoxicating beauty of Turandot. And and he says, no, no, son, life is out there. Let's leave. Life is there. He says, no, father, I'm suffering. Life is here. And just as he's saying life is here, that's when we hear this regal prince of Persia who's been led off stage call out Turandot's name and the axe falls on his neck. He has been executed. So again, we have this juxtaposition of life and And death. And the father says, so is that how you want to die, my son? And he says, no, I want to conquer. I want to conquer her father is not convinced again i think a case of the blind man seeing better than the sighted person but he's he's enraptured he's under a spell in a way and now we get the appearance of my favorite trio (laughs) oh is this ping pang and pong indeed this is Is ping pang and pong what do you Tell us about Ping Pang and Pong. Well, I mean, their names are Ping Pang and Pong, so that's hilarious to begin with. <laughs> yes. And they're they're just funny. They're like comic relief. Yeah, although they speak some truth and they they say some pretty harsh things. They're so it's almost like their costumes and their behavior and their tunes are funny, but a lot of their words are are deadly serious. Well, yeah, and we talk about this, I mean, not a lot, but we've talked about it before where you can say things with comedy that you can't say straight, you know, right? Because the the humor softens it, and you can right. Well, the first the first thing they as they come in in their very first song, they say, "Young man, go away! You're mad." They impale you here. They cut your throat. They skin you alive. 
they knife you and pollard you. They saw you up and disembowel you. I mean, not particularly funny things to say. No. No, not at all. It's pretty, it's pretty gruesome, but they're trying to say, come to reason, come to your senses. Yeah, they're trying to warn him. We have enough madmen locally here. We don't need foreigners to come in and be crazy as well. Go away. <laughs> we don't want to have to plan your funeral, which is what we'll have to do if you stay and persist with this foolishness. Okay, well, so do we get to hear Ping, Pang, and Pong? Absolutely. Okay. beautiful the way the three of their voices interact together they're it's spectacular would you like to hear more from them yes because there's a little interlude where some of the ladies in waiting to the princess come out and try to shush them and the prince is like oh i can i can smell her beauty the darkness breathes forth her fragrance and they shoo away the young women and they continue to try to dissuade this unknown prince from trying to take the test of the three questions.
So there was a lot going on in that one, too. Oh, my word. You are so right. That is where we get these phantoms of the previously executed princes. Oh, is that what that was? That's in the beginning. Uh Uh-huh. The phantoms appear, and interestingly, they are very eager for this unknown prince to accept the challenge because they want to see Turandot again. And they even sing as a group. I love her. I love her. Huh. These She's phantoms. She's got some yeah. exceptional power. She does. She, she must be very beautiful. And the unknown prince is not happy with these phantoms. He says, no, only I love her. And well, Ping Ping and Pong are just like, are you crazy? You love her? Are you insane, young man? And Pang even says... Turandot does not exist. Only then, and Ping says, only the nothingness exists in which you annihilate yourself. This is getting pretty existential. Right? Pong, well, it is 20th century. Pong and Pang say Turandot does not exist, and Ping says, like all those idiots before you, man, God, the ego, peoples, kings. Only the Tao, only the way exists. Wow. Interesting. This this goes back to, what were you saying, Friedrich Schiller? the Well, I mean, the Tao is not Schiller. No, I know the Tao isn't, but but, I mean. But, you know, this concept of talking about the ego, it's, I mean, that could be Freud. Like, we just, this goes by very quickly when they sing it. But it's there. It's in this libretto. And Mm -hmm. it is there as part of the trying to grapple with who is this woman who doesn't really seem like a woman? And, and I would argue this prince who doesn't really seem like a man either. And he says, I want the triumph. I want the love. And that kind of ends the discussion. And at this point, we see the executioner appear holding simply the head, just the head of, of the, the Persian, Persian prince. Yeah. Lovely. So again, we've got where he says, I want to live. I want the love. I want the triumph. On the one hand, there's that, and on the other hand, there's this head without a body of the man who's just been executed. It's, it's serious, 
And at this point, the father comes in and says, son, listen to me. We've just been reunited. Do you want me all alone in my old age? What about filial piety? You know, he doesn't use that phrase, but one wonders. And Lieu jumps in, and we get a beautiful aria where Lieu says, please listen, I can't stand it anymore. We fought so hard to get here, and now we're with you, and things could be set somewhat right. And she pleads with him, and he replies with his own aria, don't weep, Lieu, just be a good girl and take care of my father, essentially. Hmm.
If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL, and on today's show, we're listening to Trondot by Giacomo Puccini, and as we near the end of the first act, we've learned that the unknown prince has fallen madly in love with the icy princess Trondot, and even though he's just been reunited with his father, who is blind and elderly, and they've been separated for years, and... The father thought the prince was dead, but he's not. And now the slave girl, Liu, who has been looking after his father because she's pining for the unknown prince. And he's like, all right, I'm going to peace out and go after this ice queen Turandot and try and solve these riddles and probably get beheaded. But I'm not going to because I'm going to conquer this. And Liu says, don't do it. And the father says, don't do it. And he says, I'm going to do it anyway. Yes. In fact, he ends that piece that we just heard saying, take care of my father, Liu, and I am the man who smiles no more. Just a shadow of a smile remains. It's basically self-pity at this point. I ask of your unfailing heart to take care of my father. This is from he who smiles no more. So he's bringing all of this on himself, and he's asking her to pity him. Yeah, she's got to do all the emotional labor. Just like has been happening from time immemorial. That's right. And the father has realizes he's not going to change the son's mind. And he says, ah, for the last time. And this final piece of act one is one of those glorious act ending pieces that we get in opera where we've got a sextet. We've got the choruses on stage and, and chiming in a little bit. But everybody is expressing what they're feeling at the moment in an amazing huge number. Timur is is just feeling bereft. Leo is saying, "Have pity, my lord, have pity to the unknown prince." Ping Pang and Pong are saying, "Why are you destroying yourself? Why? He's crazy. He's a madman. 
The father continues with, have pity on me. And at the very end, the minister's ping, pang, and pong realizes it's useless. His mind is not going to be changed. And the three of them say there's no use shouting in Sanskrit, Chinese, or Mongolian, meaning this is a universal idea. Mm -hmm. Death is happy. Let the gong clang. Death is happy. Little nihilistic there. Yeah. So that's the end of Act One. So that was the rousing end of Giacomo Puccini's Turandot Act One. Yes. And now what happens? Well, now we are in a little pavilion, which I assume is sort of the office area for our three ministers, Ping, Pang, Pang and, and Pong. Pong. <laughs> yes. And they're talking amongst themselves. A lot of the same ideas that we've heard about their concerns we have one of them say, well, we're, we have to be ready. It's our responsibility to make everything work around here. Mm-hmm. So 
how about if I get ready for a wedding and you get ready for a funeral and that way our bases are covered. <laughs> okay. Good idea. Good planning. Yeah, so many I mean, there are there are expectations, there are traditions that have to be maintained in the event of a wedding, in the event of a funeral, so we have to be ready for everything. And then there's a little bit of reflection on China itself. Oh China, oh China, who now starts and leaps restlessly. How happily you used to sleep, filled with your 70,000 centuries. So they're reminding us of China or the world's Mm -hmm. long existence with people and that this is a momentary ruffling of of the status quo, of the serenity. And they say everything was going along just according to the world's ancient law until Turandot was born. So they regret her period of, and she's not, her father is the emperor, but she's thrown everything upside down. And they reflect on all of the different suitors who have come, and they count them off in the various years, how many men, how many princes, because they have to be royal blood, Mm -hmm. how many princes have come and tried to answer the enigmas, but they cannot, and they've been executed. And then there's a sweet little song where Ping sings about, I have a little house in Honan. Oh, I remember this. It's, it's lovely. And they each think about where they would go back to if they were not required to serve the emperor and the princess. Shall we listen to a little bit more of Ping, Pang, and Pong? Yeah, I had a little house in Honan.
questo qui a dissiparmi la mia vita a stillarmi il cervello sui libri So Ping Pang and Pong are reminiscing, thinking about that little house in Hunan and all of the things. A reverie. A reverie of what might be, but not what is. Right. So what is? So what is? They tell us it's bad for China. Farewell, divine lineage. China may come to an end. So if it hadn't occurred to us previously... If the emperor's only offspring doesn't get married, that does end this divine lineage. Well, she's got to stop murdering people. Yeah, that would help. They talk for a, a little while about, well, maybe maybe if I just made her bed a little softer and fluffed up the feathers and perfumed her chamber and held a soft light, maybe she could get in a romantic state of mind. They're probably not the ones to pull this off, but... But they remind us that what's at stake here is continuance. Yes, the the, the continued existence. And they're trying to strategize as to how to bring that about. And they say, we're dreaming while the palace is already swarming with lanterns and servants and soldiers. Oh, it's terrible. It's just terrible because... After all, this unknown prince has hit the gong and he, he is summoning her and she's going to have to show up to 
pose her riddles. So let's go out with a little bit more from our trio of ministers and finished up the first half of this episode of Opera for Everyone. Listening to Opera for Everyone, a radio show and podcast that makes opera understandable, accessible, and enjoyable for a mainstream audience. It airs Sundays from 9 to 11 a.m. Mountain Time on 89.1 KHOL in Jackson, Wyoming. KHOL is Wyoming's only community radio station. Opera for Everyone is hosted by me, Keely Heron, and me, Pat Wright. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud and like our Facebook page, Opera for Everyone, 
where you can also send us a message. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoy the second half of today's episode. of Opera for Everyone. I'm Keely Heron. I'm Pat Wright. And on today's episode, we are listening to Turandot by Giacomo Puccini. On today's show, we are listening to a recording from 1977 conducted by Alain Lombard. It was at the Palais de la Musique in Strasbourg. The role of La Principessa Turandot is played by Montserrat Caballé. The role of Liu is played by Mireya Freni. The unknown prince, because we still don't know his name, is played by Jose Carreras. And Timur, the unknown prince's father, is sung by Paul Plishka. Which brings us to the Opera Helmet quiz, Pat. It does. That's Everyone's where, favorite part of the show. That's where you succinctly tell us what has happened so far in the story. That is where I attempt to succinctly tell us where we are. (laughs) Um, Okay, so we are set in ancient mythical China. And our principal character, Princess Turandot, is an icy princess who is apparently the only offspring of the emperor. And she is looking for a suitor of royal blood who can answer three riddles. And so far, there is a long line of dead princes who have seen the lovely ice queen, Princess Torandot, immediately fallen in love with her, accepted the challenge, rang the gong, and then did did not successfully answer the three enigmas and were then beheaded and are now dead. Cut to the current (laughs) conquest. Yes. Um, the, the, the play opened with the people of Peking eagerly anticipating the execution of the most recent victim of Turandot's riddles, the Prince of Persia. Um, so they're all bloodthirsty and they want to kill him. Then we immediately, in the beginning of Act One, we also are introduced to our unknown prince and his father, who they had been estranged or they lost one another, apparently, when the king was overthrown he and his son this unknown prince fled and they lost each other and accompanying the father is a slave named Liu who has chosen to accompany the deposed king because she's in love with the prince who doesn't even see her as a person because she's a slave and so this reunion happens at the same time that the unknown prince discovers that there's this riddle game that he can play to try and win the hand of Princess Turandot, and he sees her and immediately falls in love with her, and both Liu and his father are begging him not to accept this challenge, but he's completely over the moon about Turandot, and he's lost his head, and he's going to do it no matter what. And so he accepts the challenge, and... And they're not the only ones who are begging him not to accept the challenge. Right, I was just going to say, and Ping, Pang, and Pong, our favorite dark comedic characters in this production or in this opera are saying this is crazy you shouldn't do it what are you do you just want to die do you have a death wish and he cannot be talked out of this so ping pang and pong 
have a little working session where they discuss plans for a funeral and plans for a wedding and then they get all nostalgic about you know the 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 past of China and this house that they had and Honan and what's going to happen to the future of China and maybe if she were happier she wouldn't murder so many potential suitors and so they make a plot to make her bed softer and give her sweet perfumes and stuff like that then also so that the lineage will continue so, so that, that the, yes because we don't want to have this great emperor uh, the reign of this family this dynasty to end so that was at the beginning of act two and in the first scene of act two we ended with the three ministers kind of saying like well we don't really know what's going to happen we hope that this guy doesn't die and right. that's kind of where we ended, right? And it, that's exactly where we ended. And now we need to move to the next scene in the second act, mm-hmm. which is where we will finally yes. hear from the princess. Yeah. I mean, that's a long time. Yes. Act two, scene two, before we even hear the title character sing. Yes. She has plenty of work yet to do in the opera, so no worries. She will... She will earn her salary on this role. <laughs> this is a major challenging role. In fact, they say it's a, a role for a Wagnerian-style soprano. Is Has that to be right? pa- like a Brunhilde sort of character. or a, Just or big. An Isolde kind of character. Huge singing, as opposed to Lieu, who's also a soprano, but more lyrical. Mm-hmm. It's a different, different style, befitting their characters. Yeah. So... It's a huge crowd scene as we open up. The entire chorus is out there as the people of Beijing, and they are singing praises to the emperor because it, the emperor appears first, and he expresses some of his misgivings about this oath he's been forced to take with his daughter, where he has to have see these young princes killed from the neighboring territories he's not terribly comfortable with that and ultimately Turandot herself will appear and she will give us a little bit of a glimpse into why she is so cruel to the men who seek her hand
If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL. And on today's episode, we are listening to Turandot by Giacomo Puccini. And we've just heard the beginning of Act 2, Scene 2. Yes, when we finally get to hear Turandot sing and tell us a little bit about herself. But before we talk about that, I just want to take a moment to mention Turandot and its performance history in China, mm-hmm. which is rather interesting because I'm immediately reminded, thinking back to the other great Italian composer where we've done his great, magnificent spectacle, Aida, that Verdi did. And he yes. was commissioned, though, by, by the know, government of Egypt. Right, for the opening of the Suez Canal. And, right. and, and it, was, it was highly celebrated and premiered there. Clearly, that didn't happen with Turandot, this was a story that he wanted to do because he found this an interesting tale. It had, he had seen a play of the one that had been written in the late 18th century in Italian of this story from 12th century Persia. And so he tries to bring in what he can to, to make it seem Chinese. He spoke to the Italian diplomat, Baron Fassini Camassi, who had brought a music box back, and that's where he got some of the tunes and some of the oh, ideas that's right. and an actual sense of Chinese music but he also l- learned a little bit about Chinese music because there was a, a Belgian customs official J.A. van Alst who in 1884 wrote and published a book simply called Chinese Music that was used well into the 20th century huh. to give Westerners some sense of how Chinese music worked isn't that interesting? So that's how he could bring some of the, the sounds. Because he never went to China. No, he never went right. to China. So this, of course, although it premiered at La Scala in Milan shortly after his death in 1926, it wasn't played in China. Uh, China certainly did have musical performances, but China's history is complicated at this point in time and, and through much of the, the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Ultimately... China did plan a premiere of this to coincide with the creation of this lovely Beijing Opera House. And they originally had had scheduled it in Beijing and Shanghai, both in 1990. But if you'll recall, in 1989... Tiananmen Square. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so think back to those crowd scenes in the beginning of our story, Mm -hmm. where they're talking about the in great specificity, the cruelty of the imperial powers against the people of Beijing. And so Shanghai canceled theirs entirely. Beijing did not cancel it, but they essentially changed, changed the program. It was largely Westerners who were in attendance in the audience, but the first half, when they were going expecting to see this Puccini opera, the first half was just a, a medley of opera hits from different composers. And so the Audience members were a little like, that's not what I was expecting. And then they did a, this is about a two and a half hour opera. They did a one hour compression of the opera, taking out the the offensive bits. Wow. I can't even imagine. That's what, so Chinese. That's well, just. I mean, I don't know. And I certainly the sensibilities were raw, but it wasn't until... 1995 when it had a full playing and it did have a full playing at the actual proper premiere was in 1995 in Beijing but they shifted the setting a little bit it wasn't set in Peking Beijing any longer it was sort of Central Asia 
not not necessarily China. Yeah. Wow. Which, you know, there's there's an argument for it because that's where the story originally comes from, but but that isn't what Puccini wrote. So right. anyway, that was just a little a little bit of an aside. So back to Turandot. She has just told us why she doesn't trust, doesn't like, she wouldn't put it this way, but truthfully, why she fears men. Mm-hmm. And she talks about her ancestress, who was misused by a man, who was, mm. who was taken advantage of by a man, who was made subject to a man and treated quite cruelly by him. And Turandot believes that her ancestress has come alive again in her and it's up to her to protect and honor her ancestress's memory and also not to let her turn dot fall prey to a man as well. Interesting. And I, you know, I've heard it said that, well, it's not that Turandot didn't hate men. She just didn't, she didn't want someone who was inferior, hence the enigmas, hence the riddles. She needed someone who was going to be smart enough to figure things out and be her intellectual equal but right. but that's not what she's saying here what she's saying here is that i'm avenging my ancestress and mm-hmm. so every time she kills a man in a way that's some of the revenge right that she's after nevertheless in spite of her explaining all of this the prince is eager he can't wait he wants to answer the questions we've, we've already seen him cast away every bit of sensible advice that he's receiving from his family and from the high ministers of China. And he's like, basically, bring it. First question, please. Yeah. And she asks him the first question. I I mean, I would have failed this test. I don't know about you. (laughs) I don't I don't remember what the questions were. I know because they're they're um, not straightforward, I would say. She says, in the gloomy night, an iridescent phantom flies. It spreads its wings over infinite black humanity. Everyone invokes it. Everyone implores it. But the phantom disappears at dawn to be reborn in the heart. And every night it's born, and every day it dies. The moon. Turns out the answer is hope. What? And she's not making it up on the spot because it's written down on the scroll that some of the sages are holding. So she's a little off balance because he's gotten this very difficult enigma. Do you want the second one? Sure.
It flickers like flame, and it is not flame. Sometimes it rages. It's feverish, impetuous, burning. But idleness changes it to languor. If you're defeated or lost, it grows cold. If you dream of winning, it flames. Its voice is faint, but you listen. It gleams as bright as a sunset. Here you go with love, Chuck. It's <laughs> my no. final answer. I'm afraid. I'm afraid you've lost your head. It is blood. Blood. Mm-hmm. Okay, so hope, blood. I don't really see a theme here, but I'm a little slow on the uptake, so. I think these are difficult. Next one. Ice that sets you on fire. And from your fire is more frosty, white and dark. If she sets you free, she makes you a slave. If she accepts you as a slave, she makes you a king. Death. See, that one I, I feel like we could have gotten, maybe. I don't know. I, I'm just guessing now. I have no idea. I've given up a little bit. If she accepts you as a slave, she makes you a king? Of course, it's Turandot herself. Ah. Yeah. Okay. So the crowd goes wild, of course. And he, he, so he gets all three of them. He gets all three of them. Right. He kind of knew that that was going to happen, right? No right. big surprise there. But he gets all three of them. But you can see why the other guys didn't. Well, they're difficult. And do you know what happens to Turandot now that someone has answered her three riddles? She flips out. She graciously accepts him as... No, she doesn't. <laughs> no, she wigs out. She totally wigs out. And she throws herself at her father. Father, August father, help me. Don't cast your daughter into the stranger's arms. So suddenly she's the one complaining that her father's going to be mean to her by making her marry this stranger after she's put all those princes to death. This is the part that is so difficult to overcome, I feel, if you're thinking of these as people. Yeah. Because it, it makes no sense. But they're not well, people. Also, P.S. Pat, this is opera where people disguise themselves with like a thin sheet of fabric over their <laughs> eyes. Yeah, but this is a different kind of opera suspension of disbelief. Because it's fairy tale and it's allegory. Yeah, it's not like the magic flute where you've got bird people. Right. There's a lot going on here, but she says she can't give in to this man. She can't live like a slave to this man. She can't subject herself to him. But her father, the emperor, says an oath is sacred. And that is that thought is echoed by the crowd. Yeah, like you made a deal. You can't change the rules. And she she shrieks at him. Don't look at me like that. I will not be yours. The crowd's like, hey, princess, he won. He was ready to die for you. You've got to keep your end of the bargain. Totally. And she says, no one will ever possess me. And the prince is merely witnessing all of this. And he says, you asked me three riddles, and I solved all three. But right now because he doesn't want to take her against her will because he's in love he wants to make her love him as well he says I will propose only one riddle to you I remember this she has to guess his name exactly she exactly. has to find out his name he says tell me my name before dawn and if you can do that mm -hmm. I will die at dawn he's giving her another crack at killing him 
the crowd says, we will prostrate ourselves at your feet for light, king of all the world, for your wisdom, your goodness, we give ourselves to you happy in our humility. May our love rise to you. And they're singing praises to the emperor, which I hear as singing praises to the continuation of the prosperity and the existence of China. Right. Of the world. Mm -hmm. And that is the end of Act Two.
listening to Opera for Everyone on 89.1 KHOL, and on today's show, we are listening to Torandot by Giacomo Puccini. And at this point, we are just beginning Act 3. And Pat, would you like to set the scene for us? Yes, everyone's very nervous. It's nighttime, and we hear not from her, but from the crowd, the people of Beijing, and the heralds of the palace. Turandot commands thus, no one must sleep tonight in Peking. No one must sleep. Under the pain of death, the name of the stranger, the unknown prince, must be revealed before morning under pain of death. No one must sleep. So she has used her position and her power to really make the most of this second chance that she's Mm -hmm. been given by the prince who's so in love with her. He said, well, if you can find out my name before morning, then you can kill me. And he feels it's great because nobody knows his name there. He's, He's a stranger in town. So we hear this proclamation, we hear the crowd, and that's the setup for this tenor aria, which is arguably the tenor aria. My favorite, Nessun Dorma. Mio mistero è chiuso in me 
Men love that song. Well, it's interesting because the stakes are pretty high. It's a pretty serious situation what's going on here, but... He's so calm. It is a love song. Yeah, and he's just so calm. In his self-assurance, some would say delusional self-assurance, but in his self-assurance, he is saying, I'm going to make you love me. It's my love that's going to change everything for you. My kiss will break the silence that makes you mine, he says. But in the background, when you hear the chorus singing, they are saying, no one will know his name, and alas, we must die. But he's singing, I will win, I will win, I will win. And after this song is over, we have Ping and Pang and Pong saying, my friend, what, what do you really want? Listen, we're all going to be killed. She has told us we will all die. If so she's going to slaughter the entire... That's been the proclamation, and she has not, she's not backed down on her threats previously, so they have every reason to believe that her threats... She'll carry them out. Yeah. Absolutely. So Ping and Pang and Pong say, look, look, friend, what do you want? Do you want love? And they bring in these very tempting women, see their lithe bodies, and these, these women are draping themselves all over them. Do you want wealth? We will give you all these treasures. So they try to seduce him with the things that most men would want. Needless to say, it does not work. And finally, Ping says to him, don't you know what the cruel one is capable of? Don't you know the horrible tortures that China will invent if you stay and do not reveal your name? The sleepless one does not forgive, we are lost. And they go on to actually describe while they're singing about the tortures that they're all going to be made to endure. It's really horrifying if you take away the beautiful music. What the words are saying is kind of hard to hear, but it's being sung to beautiful music, so you, so you listen to it. They've just explained all these tortures, and suddenly this ragged set of people walk in, essentially being thrown to the floor. It's Timur and Lia. And the guards say, there, there's the name. It's inside these two. We saw them talking to him earlier. Oh, no. So now they're going to torture them. They were all together. And so they start in on the old man, Timur. And, you know, Leo looks around, tries to figure out what to do. And she throws herself and she says, he doesn't know anything. I'm the only one who knows his name. So she's admitted to knowing his name, but also saved the old man from torture. Mm-hmm. Well, if they believe her. And they do. And they actually go and start to torture her to get the name from her. Hmm. And she turns to the prince, who's standing right there, and says, don't worry, my lord, I will never tell. She's scared, and, and she screams at one point, and she says, oh... Because the, the old blind king doesn't actually see what's going on, but, but he knows when he hears her scream, so she asks them to bind up her mouth so that she won't upset him. So Leo has had our sympathy all along, but boy, oh boy, it's just gone up a few notches, hasn't it? Yeah, she's got like a massive martyr complex. Well... It's a pretty bad situation, and she's doing the best she can. She's trying to be decent. And in a lot of other stories, 
I'm afraid this is when you would expect the prince to be noble or try and save her or something. Exactly, because he could do it quite easily, couldn't he? But no. No, he just stands there and he says, don't hurt her, please. (laughs) But with a populace expecting to all be mass slaughtered by the cruel princess, that's not going to work. Right, yeah. So Liu has has an opportunity to to sing a bit about her plight and they can all see that the prince is upset but he's not going to do anything about it and Liu says I know his name and it is my supreme pleasure to keep this secret and she manages to grab a dagger from the belt of one of the soldiers and instantly she kills herself wow I forgot that part of the story it's key to the story. I mean, the, the most innocent and the one person who represents goodness sacrifices herself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so she, she is innocent, she is good, and she has sacrificed herself for everyone. And the crowd goes crazy because this was their one chance to get... The name. The name. There is one aria at the end that she sings about her love. So we've had a heartbreaking scene with Liu sacrificing herself. Don't put away your hanky yet. 
Oh, it gets it, sadder? It gets worse because Leo has died. And who depends on Leo for his life? The old blind king. So the old blind king kneels down next to her. And it is, I mean, I can barely speak of it without crying. It is so pitiful and so sad and so moving. And this is part of when you think, oh, that Puccini, he really knew what he was doing. He could just really get to us with the emotion of the story so amplified by his music. And Timur sings about her sweetness and her sacrifice and how he is on his way to where she is as well. for everyone on 89.1 KHOL and we're listening to Turandot by Giacomo Puccini and it just keeps getting sadder Pat it does it's it's pathetic and the crowd who moments ago was concerned only about their own life they've been moved not just by the witness of the sacrifice of this supremely good person and the pitiful situation of the man who depended upon her. But they also think, oh no, she's going to become a phantom and haunt us for the injustice that was done to her. She didn't deserve what happened to her, and she's going to cause problems in her own right as a shade. And that is being expressed, and so there is a respectful procession that carries Leo's body off the stage. And I'm going to pause here because at the premiere of this show in 1926, it was directed by Arturo Toscanini, who's reasonably well known to Americans for so many of his conducting duties, but not least of which is because he was the conductor of the NBC Symphony Orchestra at a time when it was rather a novelty to make opera and symphony available to the masses. Ah. Opera for everyone in its early stages. (laughs) 
he was the principal conductor at La Scala at this point in time. So he he had he had also premiered uh, La Fanchula del West. He had premiered La Boheme. He was seen as a, as a respected interpreter of Puccini's music. Puccini trusted him. At this point in the opera, Toscanini put down his conducting baton, and he turned around and he told the audience, "Here the opera ends." Because at this point, the maestro died. So this is as far as Puccini got. He had fully composed, he had fully scored the opera, but he had only sketches for the remaining parts. And Toscanini decided, out of respect for Puccini, and also because he had a few qualms with the way that the opera was completed by Franco Alfano, he got over those later on, but because he didn't want to do anything that wasn't Puccini's at the very first, he put the baton down. And just a little side note, when Toscanini himself died, what is inscribed as his epitaph is that very phrase, which actually works quite well, I think. Here the opera ends because at this point the maestro died. Wow. But there was more to the story. And it is a fairy tale. And a fairy tale oftentimes deserves a happy ending. But this is 1924. This is right. the 20th century. This is post-World War I. And you're not going to get a classic happy ending. Because it's really hard to feel happy after what Leo has been forced to do. After what the old man is going to be forced to deal with in that mm-hmm. pitiful scene we just ended with. So it's not entirely a happy ending, but there is going to be a marriage because after he's left alone on stage with the princess, he berates her to a degree. Look at what look at what you've done. Again, part of my brain is saying you could have stopped it if you wanted to, prince. But we'll let that be. <laughs> he says, "Look at what you've done." And she says, "Well, you've won." So you know what are you what are you complaining about exactly and he says no I haven't won I I what winning means having you and she's like well no one still no one will ever possess me my ancestress torment will not be repeated and he leans to her and he grabs her and he gives her a kiss she's in shock no one touches the princess much less kisses the princess and she She doesn't know how to deal with it. She's like, what will become of me? I am lost. And the prince says, oh, my flower. Oh, my morning flower. They're just on different planes entirely. He's rapturous because he's managed to kiss her. She is totally panicking. And ultimately, she kind of melts down. The headdress is gone. She looks more like an actual woman at this point. And an actual woman can love and not just be a nice princess. And she ultimately softens to him. And the prince says, your glory is radiant. It is the magic of a first kiss, of your first tears. And Turandot will sing about her first tears. Sentito il rivido ma 
Was the princess Turandot in Puccini's opera Turandot. She has just declared her love for this unknown prince who has kissed her and now that he sees that he's actually won her love he turns the power back over to the princess Turandot and he says my name is Caliph. I am son of Timur because they've been in hiding all this time. This is quite a revelation. And Turandot is triumphant. I know your name. And he says, my glory is your embrace. My life is your kiss. And Turandot, ah, it's morning. The hour has come. And Caliph, previously known as the Unknown Prince, says, I do not fear it. And they go before all the people. And everyone's on edge. And she comes in. And she says, I know his name. I know the prince's name. And you can imagine the relief in the crowd. And she turns to her prince and she says, his name is love. Ah. And that's your fairy tale ending. And, and maybe give a minute to think about how this works as an allegory. I'm still working out some of the details, but I think Puccini had a choice as to what he wanted to write about. And I think he picked this fairy tale this difficult story. I mean, it is Mm -hmm. a difficult story to make these compelling characters that you want to spend time with in your opera. And he Mm -hmm. certainly did do that. But it is a triumph of love. But arguably, it's it's Leo and her sacrifice, which is greater than these headstrong, dynastic forces of the ruling class. So it's in some ways, it's this collision, I think, of a little bit of verismo with a little bit of the old-time yeah. classic great and good in the story. Yeah. It's a really interesting story. Yeah. Because I really feel for her. I really feel for her with like the 
ancestral trauma, the intergenerational trauma that she's clearly carrying from her ancestress. And she's afraid. And so that's why she has this icy exterior and that's why she refuses to marry because she's afraid of losing herself. Right, and it, I think to a modern audience, certainly to me when I watched it most recently, it's a little uncomfortable when he grabs her and forces his kiss on her and that's how he's gonna get his way. Mm -hmm. But it is how the story ends. Love, true love. Thanks for listening to another episode of Opera for Everyone. I'm Keely Heron. And I'm Pat Wright. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud and like our Facebook page, Opera for Everyone, where you can also send us a message. We know that opera can be challenging. But everyone loves a good story. And a story set to music is even better. That's why our mission is to make Opera, opera for, for Everyone. everyone.